Hi there, and welcome to Even If, a weekly podcast about standing firm when life is shaking. I'm your host, Kelly Strife. Strife rhymes with wife. And together, we're finding the courage to approach uncertain and unwanted seasons of life through a posture of faith that stands firm and declares, even if he doesn't, he is still good. I have spent a lot of my life at camp. I actually moved to camp when I was six weeks old for the first time with my parents who were working there one summer. And then I was a camper at that same camp years later and eventually worked as a counselor there during college, a small camp in Pennsylvania. And then I spent my 20s as a youth director. And every summer I would load up vans full of middle school and high school students and we would head off to camp. Sometimes it was at the beach, sometimes it was in the mountains. And one summer it was on a bike trip from Washington DC to Nags Head, North Carolina. We had about a hundred students that biked the entire way from Washington DC to Nags Head, North Carolina. And just to be clear, I did not bike. I drove the van. I went out on one practice day on a bike and we decided that I was going to be more helpful driving the van. And so I would start in my 15 passenger van at the back of the group and I would drive until I got to the front of the group of about 100 kids. And then I would turn around and make my way back to the end and I would pick up any stragglers along the way or kids who were hurt or whose bike was broken or who just needed a break. But honestly, there was so much pride in making the entire trip without stopping that most kids did not want to get in my van, which meant I spent a lot of time by myself. And that happened to be the summer that the song Drops of Jupiter was released. And I couldn't even tell you how many times I sang that song at the top of my lungs while driving in circles and cheering on these campers who were making this trip of a lifetime. And then I spent about five years running a girls' camp in Georgia. And it wasn't exactly rustic, I wouldn't say, but we did camp out once during each session. And s'mores and hobos were these much-anticipated traditions that campers looked forward to each summer. And honestly, one night in the woods was just about perfect to experience nature and starry nights and sleeping in cozy tents tucked in close to friends. And we would sing songs that could only be sung around the campfire. The only place we would sing them all summer was around that campfire. And we would try to keep the smoke out of our eyes and yell, white bunny, white bunny, white bunny, to send it somewhere else. I, don't, I have no idea where that came from. But the next morning, we would all emerge smelling like that smoke, a little bit sticky from a night spent outside. And it didn't matter whether the campers loved it or hated it. It always became a story that they would tell. It was always one of the biggest memories they made. Camp out was a really big deal. And so one summer, our campus told us that we weren't allowed to have any campfires. No fires were going to be allowed on property that summer. And I don't remember if there hadn't been enough rain or if they were concerned that we wouldn't get the fires out all the way. But when we pressed further, we found out that they weren't actually worried about the fires that we could see. They were worried about something called root fires. And if you're like me, I'd never heard of root fires before. So I did a little bit of research and I discovered that in the right conditions, these cozy campfires that we would make s'mores around can actually begin burning underground. 
that those flames can travel down under the surface and into the root system of these trees that are connected and intertwined. Or they could burn peat, which is a substance that's found in the soil underground. And even when we put the fires out on the surface, they could continue to burn unseen. And once it's burning underground, there's really no end to how far it can travel. Root fires can burn for months underground without being noticed. Months. They can travel for miles underground, and they pop up far away from where they originally started. And then they can ignite major forest fires when they do pop up, consuming acres of land while they burn. They appear to come out of nowhere, but they've actually been smoldering and simmering the whole time. And they sometimes burn at really low temperatures, which makes them difficult to detect. But they've been consuming everything in their path, taking out foundations and support systems the whole time. We just couldn't see them. But that didn't mean they weren't there. And that didn't minimize the damage in their wake. And in fact, they're actually more damaging because they're unchecked, unnoticed, and unseen. And by the time we do notice them, it's usually because they've popped back up above the surface somewhere completely unconnected, completely unexpected, somewhere completely unprepared to face the flames that they create. And they've spread so far by then that they're incredibly difficult to put out because they are covering so much ground. Sometimes they put out smoke, which can be a warning sign that something's going on, but even the smoke often escapes far away from the original source. So firefighters typically look for these visual cues. They look for things like dying plants or depressions in the ground where it's already burned. But it's really hard work to trace them back to the source and put them out where they began. And that's what they were worried about that summer. They weren't worried about the fires that we could see. They were worried about the ones that we couldn't. It's hard to extinguish them if you don't know they're there. It's hard to contain them if you don't even know they're moving. And it's hard to put them out if you don't know they're burning. We came up with some kind of compromise or solution that summer. I don't remember all the details, but I do know that we had hobos and s'mores after all, and our campers never knew the difference. But I have never forgotten. And as I've grieved in this season, I've dealt with a lot of root fires myself. For me, the source is obvious. I don't have to work too hard to trace those pop-ups back to the source. I am carrying grief that has ignited fires in all areas of my life. There's nothing that escapes unharmed. And it's funny, I waffle back and forth between being amused and irritated because there are people who are trying to escape being collateral damage. There's a lot of collateral damage in my life. There's a lot of collateral damage when you walk through something as traumatic as losing a child. There is not a single relationship in my life that's gone untouched. There isn't a single aspect of my life that's preserved. There are fires popping up everywhere, and I know exactly where they came from, even when they seem unrelated. But even though I know, I still find myself trying to deal primarily with the offshoots, trying to manage the outbursts or the explosions or the tears. I still find myself convinced 
that I've put out the original fire at the surface where it's under control at least, so I'll just have to deal with these one-offs as they come. And some of you are with me. Some of you don't need to trace the path back to find the original source of the fire. For some of you, there's no question where it came from, even though there might be some question about how it popped up where it did. But some of you have been listening for somebody else. Some of you are listening and thinking of your friends who went through something similar or a family member who might relate. And I'm just going to stop you right there. Because it doesn't take a major traumatic loss to start a fire underground. In fact, it might actually be even more dangerous for you because you never acknowledged there was a fire to begin with. You never put much thought into the slow burn that was beginning. And you actually very intentionally stuffed that grief or that pain or that loss away and told yourself it wasn't worthy of acknowledging. Maybe you convinced yourself it could be worse. Maybe you told yourself it would get better. Or maybe somebody else told you to suck it up and pull it together and that's exactly what you did. But refusing to acknowledge the flames of grief or of disappointment or of sadness and loss doesn't make the fire go away. It doesn't put out the flames. It just sends them underground. So these fires that are popping up in completely unrelated areas of life, they're not so unrelated after all, because we're not compartmentalized or disembodied and segmented humans who can shut down one area of our lives and keep the fire contained. It will travel. It will spread. And it will consume. And maybe we need to take a few moments and look for the signs. The sign might be obvious. It might have spread so far that it's exploded somewhere else as anger or jealousy or tears. But if it hasn't popped up yet, then we might have to be like the firefighters and look for the visual cues. The firefighters ask, where are the plants dying? So where are you withering? Maybe you're bone tired or weary and spent not from effort, but from existing. Maybe you've shut down and all of your energy is going toward essential functions. You've lost your creativity, your passion, your enthusiasm for life. The firefighters ask, where are the depressions in the ground? So where can you not bounce back? Maybe you feel less like yourself, but you can't put your finger on why. Maybe you're carrying physical depression or anxiety without any immediate cause. If you look at the landscape of your life, are there visual cues that you've been overlooking or ignoring or explaining away? And if so, can you trace that back to the original source? Maybe it's obvious like it is for me, or maybe there are losses that you have yet to acknowledge. But either way, the answer is the same. Find the source, tend the flames, and soak the original fire. God never asked us to deny our pain. God never asked us to minimize our loss. God never asked us to stuff our brokenness away. And God never asked us to hustle harder or do more or outrun our disappointment and grief. You can't run fast enough. And I don't think God even asked us to find purpose in our pain too soon. 
And this is what I'm learning right now. I jump quickly to purpose and meaning and using it for good. And those things aren't necessarily bad or wrong, but they don't make me better. They don't make me more valuable. They don't make my loss more profound. Finding purpose isn't the goal. Meeting Jesus is. Learning a lesson isn't the objective. Encountering God is. And inviting others into our story doesn't amount to a whole lot if we haven't invited him in first. I started to tell you that the only way to put out these fires once they've started to burn is water, H2O. Hydration is the only cure. And in fact, there are a handful of scientific ways that firefighters produce enough water to put out these kinds of flames. They do something called cloud seeding. And they fly planes into clouds near storm fronts. And they spray a solution of silver iodide. And that acts as dust particles for water vapor to cling to and turn into rain. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But somehow it produces rain. They go to great lengths to access enough water to douse these flames. And there's some cliche but true application of that here. We have direct access to living water, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 4. Water that never runs out, that never runs dry. Water that can't be produced or manufactured on our own, but only comes directly from him. But I think it might be more helpful to acknowledge that some fires aren't meant to be extinguished, at least not right away. Some fires will never be completely quenched or drowned or snuffed out. Some fires might continue to burn far longer than we would like, but we can invite God to tend them with us. Above the surface, in the light, where we name and acknowledge our pain, where we don't shame ourselves for our suffering or sorrow, but where we encounter him, Jesus, who knows what it feels like to ache on full display. And maybe it's in trying to put it out too soon. Maybe it's in trying to hide it or tuck it away that it dips below the surface and gains power underground that it never would have in the light. Maybe we're being invited to choose healing over hiding, dependence over denial, surrender over suppressing and shame. And maybe your fire will fizzle out given time and tending and care. Or maybe it'll burn on full display. Mine, guys, mine feels like a full-on bonfire with fireworks thrown in for kicks. It's exploding everywhere and people can't help but notice. But if it's going to burn, I'm pulling out s'mores and eating while it grows. And trusting that God is tending it with me even here. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Even If. My prayer is that even if your knees are weak, today's episode offers you enough strength to keep standing firm. If this message resonates with you, or if you know someone who needs to borrow a little strength of their own, there are two ways that you can help spread the word. First, leaving a rating and review will help people find this podcast when they need it most. And it lets me know that people are listening and joining in. Reviews are super important in the podcast world, and I'd be so grateful if you'd take 30 seconds to rate and review. Second, spreading the word on social media helps get this message out farther than I ever could on my own. 
So please feel free to share this podcast and tag your friends that would love this as much as you. I always continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at kelly.strife if you want to join us there. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure these episodes show up automatically in your feed each week. See you back here next week for the next episode of Even If.